0: I'm Grant. And I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys.
1: The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past.
0: That's right. We're talking about history till death do us (laughs) podcast. Still no?
1: Still still no. All right.
0: Next time. I promise. Next time it'll be good. Good, And you'll like it. it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Good luck. So I am going to be uh, taking the, the teacher seat in this one, even though you won the last I, coin flip. I
1: did. I did win it.
0: Because like we discussed back then, uh, you just had your uh, wisdom teeth out. So uh, the time that would have been you collecting notes and doing everything was recovery time. Yeah,
1: that wasn't happening. <laughs> that, that was so not happening.
0: So that, that coin flip will be for episode four.
1: Yes. And yes, I'm, I will take the next one. And
0: this is just me filling in. So, yeah. Yeah. And today we're going to talk about uh the comics code. Now, uh, darling, you you wanna read some uh, some comic books?
1: Do I wanna read some? Yeah. Yeah, I like reading them.
0: Yeah, I gotta stagger there. What what are you into these days?
1: I don't know. I'm into a variety of stuff. But my only like superhero comic was like the arrow comic.
0: Yeah, the the T V show tie-in.
1: Yeah, but there's, you know, all the, the Disney stuff that's come out. Mm-hmm. Like haunted mansion fairy mm-hmm. stuff there got my princess comic there's okay. a, there's of course the i hate Fairyland one can't can't say the other word <laughs> told me not to swear so can't say the title i really like for it sure oh 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 saga how could i not just like blurt out saga yeah because it's the drugs i'm gonna say it's still the drugs sure that
0: like. <laughs> okay you can't read any of those Okay, not, you, you, not
1: even the princess. You can read
0: that. That's that's. You can read uh, the the Disney Princess Kitty Gag comic. That that's it.
1: But what about Saga? No, I can't live without no, Saga. I'm, I'm
0: sorry, that goes against the rules.
1: But but what's the point of living?
0: <laughs> Welcome to 1955. No. The Comics Code Authority was an industry body that regulated content in comic books. It was publishers telling each other and themselves what was fit to print
1: them jerks
0: them jerks uh it was founded in 1954 and ran for over 50 years surprisingly long uh by the time it ended jerks by, by the time the code ended most people thought it had been gone for decades uh it wasn't legally binding but uh sellers and wholesalers and advertisers would often only support books that were code approved so if you can't get money, it's even more efficient than being, like, legally banned.
1: Why is everyone a jerk?
0: <laughs> well, we're going to get to that. Okay,
1: I'm glad you're going to answer these I'm questions gonna answer I have. am going to answer these
0: questions. Uh, it turned out to be one of the most restrictive and confusing content codes in media. Sounds like Like, you it. look at an MPA rating, and it says, you know, rated PG for themes. That's confusing, but not nearly as confusing as the, the comics code. Okay. At least you know what gore and moderate violence probably means.
1: Eh, sometimes I question sometimes. it, but yeah.
0: Uh, but the reason I wanted to talk about this is that the code uh, I'm going to argue at least is responsible for the image of comic books and influences the state of the industry to this day. Okay. Now to talk about where the code came from, you got to go back a few years to a man named Frederick Wortham who wrote a book called Seduction of the Innocent. Which sounds like some steamy, like paperback airplane novel. Ooh!
1: Steal that from your g- parents' <laughs> bedstand and go read that into the in the broom closet. Th-
0: this was not the sort of book that had Fabio on the cover, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, Frederick, Frederick, good old Fred was a psychiatrist who started work in the 30s and 40s, and uh, he believed quite strongly in the effects of the environment and background on children's development, which at the time was one of many competing theories, but now it's pretty well accepted. So yeah. he was a bit ahead of the curve on that. Um, he knew he wanted to do, do something with brains, but as a student he actually got to correspond with Freud and decided, oh yeah, that's the way, psychiatry, this new and exciting uh, uh, field of study. That's what I'm going to do. Okay. So he had plenty of accomplishments beside. He wrote uh, "The Brain as an Organ" in 1934.
1: That's an interesting title as well.
0: Well, it was a textbook.
1: Okay. And uh, I prefer to think that that's like the sultry novel. The,
0: the brain as Fabio's organ. Oh goodness! But it was a the definitive textbook on brain physiology. Uh, he was also an expert witness who would speak before juries, convincing them not to execute the mentally ill.
1: That's good. Yeah, that's
0: pretty good that's stuff. Good. Yeah,
1: I can support that.
0: Part of his work about how you know environment and background impact children's development, uh, he, he published studies which demonstrated segregated schools were detrimental to children's mental health.
1: Okay. Hey, okay. Like, hey, this guy was up on a lot of a lot of things.
0: Those studies were even cited in the uh, Supreme Court case uh, of Brown versus the Board of Education. Nice. Fre- Frederick Wortham helped in his own way to desegregate American public schools.
1: There, there's going to be a big butt here. <laughs> big butt. He,
0: he was a rather slim man, didn't he?
1: <laughs> <laughs> not, not his actual buttocks. I mean, like...
0: I'm obsessed with Frederick Wortham's actual buttocks. He opened the Lefargue Clinic uh, in Harlem to provide psychiatric care to black teenagers, and it was largely supported by volunteer donations and also the state. A lot of his uh, students, or excuse me, a lot of his patients were uh, juvenile offenders who were sent there to be like, okay, is this kid a jerk or are they brain sick? How, how do we deal with this case? Okay. The clinic took as part of its mission... Uh, to work against the disproportionate diagnosis of schizophrenia in black teens as opposed to white offenders, and pushed against the use of shock treatment in patients that had no medical cause. Good. This is all really good stuff. This is
1: all really, really good stuff.
0: You see, he also wrote Seduction of the Innocent. His public image is now dominated by that one thing.
1: That thing that gives us the big butt.
0: You know, you one goat.
1: Did he do that?
0: No, it, it's a metaphor, dear. Uh, well, it, I know a it's a
1: metaphor, but I just thought, like, was, was that, like, comic a bo- thing? Comic but...
0: books made Frederick Wortham f***ing goats, yes. That's what I'm saying.
1: Leave the goats alone.
0: So, let's talk about Seduction of the Innocent, published in 1954. In the early and mid and late 50s, juvenile delinquency was a big, big thing. Yeah. G Office of Krapke. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love that song.
0: <laughs> so uh, it's not just a song written in the early sixties about the late fifties. It was an actual moral panic.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh teenagers were a brand new social thing.
1: <gasps> They're being teenagers, was, uh, oh no.
0: <laughs> you know, we we've got uh James Dean. Elvis is just coming on the scene.
1: Avert your eyes, children.
0: I mean, the, the big fear of Elvis was a fear of race mixing because you know the the black artists that Elvis was borrowing from were, were already on the scene and also terrifying to parents. So we've got this new class of people who who just aren't uh, listening to authority. They're standing on the s- uh, uh, street corners smoking and shooting dice,
1: shooting those dice. <laughs> Is that what they did? Did they actually shoot dice?
0: Well, not with guns. It was well,
1: No, but I mean is is that really like was that really a pastime of the teenagers of the nineteen fifties?
0: More often than they shot people, but the fear was still there.
1: <laughs> I think they had better things to do as teenagers. Like make out.
0: Yes, they 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 were making up.
1: I think that's really what they did. When were doing. you're
0: a jet you smooch jets all the way. Yeah. All the live long day. Yeah. Along with juvenile delinquency comes juvenile arrests and uh, children to be uh, referred to Wortham's clinic. So, you know, he'd talk with these kids, be like, so what are you into? And he found that uh, nearly all of them were avid comic book readers. See, the thing is, in the early and mid-1950s, 90% of all children were avid comic book readers. Yeah. Uh, there, there was no control group to Wortham's study here
1: that was appealing to them. They could afford to buy them.
0: They were still like a nickel or three cents or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's
1: where their pocket money went.
0: Mm -hmm. So Wortham started reading these comics uh, that his patients uh, were talking about and found them full of violent images being sold to impressionable minds by exploitative corporations. See, there's also... He saw himself as uh, saving these children from these uh, amoral capitalists were exploiting the poor's desire for a uh, uh, base entertainment. He, he was a class warrior of the most busy body and kind. He, he started campaigning, giving speeches even as early as like 1948 He even tr- helped pass two laws through the New York legislature to restrict the sale of comics to minors. Both of them were struck down by Governor Thomas Dewey, so they, they didn't become law, but they were on the books in a sense.
1: Good job Good job, Thomas Dewey. Dewey.
0: Maybe I like you. Maybe one day you will defeat Truman. <laughs> it, it was that Dewey. Like, the oh, same guy. Okay. With, like, going directly to lawmakers not working, he needed, he needed to put that pressure somewhere. So, go straight to the people. And he wrote Seduction of the Innocent, published in 1954. Uh, here are some of the charges raised against comic books as a medium. Uh, they're racist in their depictions. Uh, they desensitize children to gore and violence. You know what else desensitizes children? Every other moral panic from uh, before and after. Yep. Uh, They promote homosexual behavior. He was very interested in the close relationship between Bruce Wayne and young Dick Grayson, noting how often uh, one would be wearing a dressing gown around the other as, as they hung out at home, being cared for by their elderly Faye Butler. Okay. Subliminal sexual messages. The notion of superheroes as uber mentioned as inherently fascist, which has got to come off really uh, well to Spiegel and Schuster, the uh, Jewish immigrant creators of Superman. Yeah. Uh, they promote illiteracy uh, rather than the, the reading of real serious literature.
1: Oh, hold up there.
0: Darlin, how did you learn to read? Archie. Yeah?
1: <laughs> I did not care about learning to read myself. I liked people reading to me Mm -hmm. until I started buying Archie Digest magazines and no one would sit around long enough to read them to me. So I had to learn to read myself. (laughs) So I did. No.
0: They were filled with ads for products unhealthy to children, which, yeah.
1: Oh, all magazines at that time were filled with things that were unhealthy for everyone.
0: One, did you know that Wonder Woman is a lesbian and promotes lesbianism among uh, impressionable young girls?
1: I don't think she does.
0: Oh, suffering Sappho.
1: I mean, maybe, maybe for some people, but I don't, I don't think that's like the point of Wonder Woman.
0: So, really, the, these uh, charges were a mix of uh, some that had merit. Uh, although whether they were any more, say, uh, racist or lurid than other entertainment of the time is questionable. But all of them were really focused on censoring things and keeping them out of the hands of children. Another problem with Wortham's ideas was that, uh, comic books were inherently a children's medium. When at the time, uh, the children of the 40s were growing up into the teens and young adults of the 50s who still enjoyed reading these gory lurid crime and horror stories yeah uh the superheroes of the golden age had pretty much fallen out of favor the only ones still being uh published were batman superman and wonder woman Mm -hmm. comics were a wide-ranging uh they were a western medium they were uh tales from the crypt medium like the the crypt keeper comes from 50s comics
1: i did not know that
0: yeah Uh, that's cool but, from his perspective, they're all being peddled to impressionable children, so we need to keep them out of the hands of children. The illustrated edition of his book uh was filled with the most explicit panels they got permission to reprint uh and so, with these words next to these sensational images of of violent crime, uh, I became an instant bestseller among nervous parents
1: so so let's let's the actually, worst of the worst, mm-hmm. which is like one percent of it, yeah. If, and put, like, big, bold letters, this will mess up your kids.
0: Mm-hmm. If you wanted to argue that, say, The Incredibles is a, a objectivist uh, uh, tale, so we should keep movies out of the hands of impressionable young children, and meanwhile, here's some images of Michael Fassbender's penis from Shame, therefore, kids shouldn't watch movies. That's the argument. Okay. Sure.
1: That was a weird segue there, but Okay. Yeah,
0: it's it's all comics. Therefore, it's all under the purview of Seduction of the Innocent.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: His uh, uh, actual data came open uh, or was rechecked uh, in around 2010 uh, by researchers who found things like um, things he only could have heard secondhand being reported as firsthand, seeing that his uh, basis for evidence was more forensic than. Uh, scientific, which makes sense because he was a court appointed uh, expert witness for most of his work. That was his wheelhouse, basically. But it also means instead of having actual, you know, data with control groups and P values, he just has a string of uh, anecdotes. So he told
1: me this thing. Yeah. So let me repeat it.
0: A kid once told me that he got an idea for his robbery from a crime comic he read. Therefore these all are,
1: kids are going to rob
0: stores. If they read enough comics, maybe.
1: Ugh. Ugh.
0: So on the other hand, we have a company called EC Comics. They published all sorts of horror, crime, war, and, and sci-fi stories. Like I mentioned, they're where The Crypt Keeper comes from. Okay, Tales from the Crypt, a, an EC title. In 1952, they started publishing MAD, uh, later to be known as MAD Magazine, which became their biggest success. Jokes sell even better than stabbings, it turns out. Who'd have thunk it? It became so popular in 1933, they launched a second humor comic, Panic. The first issue was banned in Massachusetts for depicting Santa Claus in a pagan fashion.
1: <gasps> How dare they?
0: In sort of an over-the-top, like, parody of The Night Before Christmas.
1: Cool. Yeah. <laughs> I will see what that looks like.
0: So it was banned in uh, Massachusetts, also in New York City. Uh, police officers went into the EC offices, demanded the receptionist sell them a copy, and then arrested her for selling obscene materials. Okay. This is what it looks like, you know? It was a sting for obscenity. If you look at the history of Hustler, you know, the People versus Larry Flint, it's the same thing just a few decades later. In this case, a ridiculous Santa Claus parody.
1: How dare you depict Santa Claus in such a way.
0: How dare what you? will it do to the children? How dare you attack the very nature of Christmas, the most Christian of holidays? That's about a guy bringing presents to people.
1: If it was, that's what
0: it's about. If it was if, about if Jesus, if it was,
1: if it was Jesus on there, not not that I would get upset, but I could see people getting offended. <laughs> it's Santa Claus.
0: It's Santa Claus. Santa Claus is the most Christmassy person, even more Christmassy than Jesus. Thank you very much. At least Jesus exists the the rest of the year. I. Uh, I mean, Santa
1: Claus always exists. Remember, he's always watching. Always.
0: Don't bring that pagan claptrap into our home. (laughs) EC publisher Bill Gaines became a major opponent to censorship. I mean, he was before then, but having his receptionist arrested for going along with what the cops told her to do, eh, pretty galvanizing. Yeah. The Senate began holding hearings nationwide on juvenile delinquency in 1954. They were going around the country hearing different sides of the juvenile delinquent uh, issue. They announced that their New York hearings would first be televised and also be hearing uh, testimony on this whole comic book thing. Okay. People from the board had also been uh, involved in the similarly televised hearings on uh, organized crime a few years later. You could, if you wanted, to compare it to the McCarthy hearings a few years later uh after the same sort of idea you know people come up and answer uh senators questions and then get yelled at so they can get votes next election i'm pretty sure the mob survived 1951 that's all i'm saying you know okay uh including uh senator esther's kefauver who uh was what was his name kefauver k-e-f-a-u-v-e-r kefauver
1: it just seems like there should be so many more letters in there. Or, or maybe less. Or maybe I less? <laughs> I don't know. It, what an interesting name.
0: What an interesting fella. He sat on uh, both committees, the uh, Anti-Mob and uh, Anti-Juvenile Delinquency Committee. Both featured Senator Kefauver. Uh, Bill Gaines uh, ran a satiric... <laughs>
1: Sorry, every time you say Bill Gaines, I just automatically think Bill Gates.
0: He's not that old, dear.
1: <laughs> I know, but I just automatically picture his face every time
0: worrying about this sort of uh incoming wave of of backlash and censorship he ran a satirical ad across the whole ec line uh that said in part the group most anxious to destroy comics are the communists now senators in the 1950s don't enjoy being called communists No, they did not take well to this
1: they were they were very antsy about
0: that Good old Freddie Wortham was called as an expert witness and gave testimony on April 24th for a live television audience at home and uh, got to say basically all the same arguments he made in his book and his speeches, and it, it was well rehearsed by this point. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Gaines was not invited to speak. He asked them and was granted the chance, and he came on immediately after. He'd gotten no sleep the day before because of nerves, and he was rehearsing what he was going to say, and he was immediately pounced on by the senators he'd ridiculed. They were uh, uh, just hostile right out of the gate, because he called them secret communists.
1: Don't do that.
0: Don't do
1: that. Well, maybe so, do that, but you might not like what happens.
0: So we, we've got a, a bit of testimony from that day, the most famous part. Uh, Darling, do you want to be Senator Kefaver or uh, publisher Bill Gaines?
1: I will be the
0: senator. All right.
1: Here is your May issue. This seems to be a man with a bloody axe holding a woman's head up, which has been severed from her body. Do you think that's in good taste?
0: Yes, sir, I do for the cover of a horror comic. A cover in bad taste, for example, might be defined as holding the head a little higher so that the blood can be seen dripping from it, and moving the body over a little further so that the neck of the body could be seen to be bloody. This didn't really make the uh, case. The Gaines wanted it to. (laughs) He might have been better served with a nap and and a little uh, bit of a demure attitude because uh, the immediate reaction was swift and devastating. Sales plummeted. Uh, The public outcry was huge. Everybody in the uh, comics industry was watching from home on television and knew that a bomb just dropped the industry was going to be changed forever from that awful, awful soundbite. There were huge uh, book exchanges where, where uh, kids were encouraged to come to libraries and dump all of their comics and trade them for real wholesome books. And the the comics that were exchanged were burned in big old piles. Uh, so, so this outright rage starts with uh, one of Wortham's accusations that the idea of the superhero is fascist. And it continues to actual book burnings.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So in the face of this, Bill Gaines sees uh, that the industry needs to do something or there won't be one anymore. He sends out a letter to top publishers to form an industry body to advocate for comics. Uh, this became the Comics Magazine Association of America, the CMAA. Okay. Uh, 38 publishers met in August 1954, just a couple months after his horrible live TV flub, uh, to discuss plans. Now, Gaines wanted to fund studies to dispute Wertham's book, like, hey, let's find out how many non-delinquent children were reading comics and being perfectly well-adjusted in 1954. That might be a good idea. It might be a good idea. Let's uh, <laughs> uh, let's show that horror and crime comics are okay to print because not all comics are for children. Let's show that you know, fifteen year olds who aren't uh, uh, arsonists are reading this. Let's talk about how many uh, GIs came back from the war and loved the the comics they got in their care packages.
1: Yeah, like just not all comics are for kids. Not all. Books are for kids. Mm -hmm. Not everything is marketed to everyone.
0: So uh, what actually happened is the group, as as part of this meeting, they they did form a body. They elected John Goldwater, publisher of Archie Comics, as president. And they wrote the first Comics Code.
1: Okay.
0: Now, the 1954 Comics Code came down. Uh, The provisions were proudly presented by Mr. Goldwater as, quote, the most severe set of principles for any communications media.
1: I don't know if you should be proud about that.
0: Well, when you're trying to uh, sell I, your books to parents, terrified, I guess, I guess moral, panicking parents.
1: Like, oh, you'll like this now. Yeah. You should be proud of what we did.
0: I mean, they're, they're comparing it against the Hays Code, which uh, took sex out of movies entirely and yeah. was replaced with people with wearing fedoras smoking.
1: Yeah. Or
0: uh, the Those television guidelines where married, married couples could only be shown in separate beds. Yes. And now here's uh, John Goldwater saying, oh, we're way more restrictive than that. You're safe with us.
1: Great.
0: Uh, depictions of sex and drugs uh, were banned. Violence was incredibly curtailed in uh, how violence could be shown. Authority figures could only be shown as honorable and respectable. Uh, so there's no such thing as a dirty politician in a comics, uh, a code approved book. There, there's no such thing as a, a policeman on the take or turning a blind eye. They're all like Scruff McGruff,
1: mm-hmm.
0: except human. Cause I think they might've had something to say you probably, you <laughs> about can't write, like, Dr. Dog. Moreau hybrids. <laughs> the words crime, horror, and terror cannot be used in titles or placed prominently on covers.
1: Because, oh no, they can't know these words exist.
0: Well, because or because
1: it's enticing. Well, yeah.
0: How are you supposed to seduce the innocent without these seductive, dangerous uh, words?
1: They do realize there are pictures on the cover. That's enticing enough. Oh,
0: the, uh, the restrictions on pictures on the cover were also incredibly strict.
1: <laughs> I'm sure, but like, I don't know. There's other stuff to entice people.
0: One of my favorite quotes is sexual abnormalities are unacceptable, which makes me wonder what they define. Like, that's a big, like, yeah. catch-all clause. I think that just means no gay people, right? It's probably
1: what they meant, but that really opens the door to well, a lot of things. Or when
0: they use it to – or when, you know, they send something back to say no gay people, that's probably the clause they point at. Like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. There were also restrictions on the sort of ads uh, you could have no uh, replica weapons was one. So poor Ralphie could no longer be advertised his Red Rider BB gun well, th- in, what? in the back pages.
1: There goes, like, whole inspiration for a movie there.
0: The way it worked was publishers would send their books to the Comics Code Authority for approval. And they'd either get a rubber stamp and get this nice, like, actual postage stamp-looking uh, label to put on their book. Or they'd have it rejected with no's try again, redraw this, this, and this, send it back. The people making these judgments were retired school teachers checking them for objectionable materials so they could really send them back for anything they wanted. There, there was no push to, like, strictly adhere to the code. It's more uh, this us-
1: offends me.
0: using the code to justify rejecting things. Okay. Uh, Stan Lee, as an incredibly old man, was in the business in these days. He had an issue of a Western book called Kid Colt sent back for being too violent. When he asked what's so violent about it, the response was, oh no, too much smoke is coming from the hero's six shooters. Uh, it was incredibly violent smoke. <laughs> less smoke, less violent.
1: But, but, okay.
0: They, they also took it upon themselves to be sort of grammar police. Slang and colloquialisms were cut right out. They, they only spoke the, the proper, children-safe, uh, uh, moral-exemplary English.
1: Grammatically correct sentences. Yeah. Okay.
0: There was no official enforcement. However, wholesalers would only carry books that had the Comics uh, Code Authority seal. So any book that wouldn't submit to the restrictions couldn't get on newsstands. This was at the time when, you know comics were sold on newsstands you've got your your New York Times your Washington Post your detective comics your mm-hmm. Bang, your Archie
1: were, were were there ever like people with like the trench coats that then <laughs> were like on a street corner and they were just hey, like hey kid I hey kid got... look what I got
0: the whole point of uh, the code was to discourage people from, from opening doing that? from opening up their trench coats to expose themselves to children yes
1: <laughs> look at this look at this comic I got.
0: Oh! Oh! Okay. Look
1: at this comic. Like, Il- like
0: illicit sales. Excuse yes, me. Yes, where
1: they open their coat and there's like the all the holsters that are instead of holding like cigarettes and guns, it's holding comics. <laughs> and then you gotta like sneak them. You're like five cents to like run home with this not approved comic.
0: You're foreshadowing, dear. You're foreshadowing.
1: <gasps> oh, oh, sorry, <laughs> sorry.
0: The big exception to this sort of boycott was Disney-affiliated publisher Dell Comics. See, uh, Dell said they had their own even stricter guidelines, and who's going to say no to the Disney cash? If you're a big enough business, you can be the one exception. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Disney Disney got their rules, and no one else has rules like Disney.
0: And Donald Duck moves products it's true then, it's kind of true now.
1: I I had some classic like Mm -hmm. Donald Duck
0: Uncle Scrooge in the Yukon? That's good stuff, quite frankly.
1: Yeah, I had some that I got like in an antique store. still Mm -hmm. have those.
0: Uh, So before we talk more about what this code actually did for the industry, uh, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. How you doing? You you ready to get back on the horse?
1: I don't really like riding horses. Okay. One it, threw me down a hill at one time. We don't really have a great relationship.
0: In that case, let's just talk about comic books. Okay. Okay.
1: Those haven't thrown me down hills.
0: So uh, the the CMAA has been formed. They've established a code. Let's talk about what it did. Bad uh- things. <laughs> Well, yeah, the, the effects initially were huge. See, uh, only kid-focused books could continue unchanged. A later writer described it as, what if the guidelines to get a G rating were doubled and only G-rated movies were allowed to be in theaters?
1: Uh, they, like, don't even bother making G-rated movies anymore. <laughs> it's, like, one a year. Because they know no one sees them.
0: Well, the thing is, when the guy in charge of the whole industry body runs Archie Comics, how surprising is that?
1: I feel like that's talking bad against Archie, though.
0: Uh, so, EC and Bill Gaines went out of the comics business entirely. Uh, when you can't have all of the words in your title that are the titles of EC books,
1: yeah, that's what's
0: going to happen. Uh all of those books were just cut off at the knees and folded almost immediately. Mad became a glossy magazine, instead, uh, which was outside the purview of the CAA.
1: Ah.
0: So that's how Mad trick you there. Mad continues to this day with its ups and downs, just like any other long running comedy, where everyone believes it was best when they were twelve.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know about that. Okay.
0: But yeah. <laughs> One of the last books EC printed included the story Judgment Day, which was initially run before the code, but they wanted to reprint it, uh, so they had to submit it. Uh, it's a sci-fi story by Ray Bradbury. Basically, it's about an a astronaut uh, who goes to this robot society full of orange robots and blue robots, and they're entirely the same except for their paint jobs, except one of the sets of robots has more... Uh, um, privileges, uh, and the other is oppressed. And so uh, he leaves, uh, like, th- this whole inspection is to see whether this robot planet should be allowed in sort of a Star Trek-style federation of planets. Okay. And in the end, he, he talks to his robot tour guides like, sorry, but due to your bigotry, we can't let you in the club. mm mm-hmm. And the final panel is uh, him back in his spacecraft. He takes off his space helmet, and you see it's a black astronaut. Mm-hmm. This uh, being run in the mid-50s is still a radical idea. Yeah. Yeah. This was continually rejected by uh, the code. Gaines kicked up a fuss, uh, and he himself was kicked out of the MCAA. Uh, in the end, the official uh, pronouncement was, okay, just take the sweat off the astronaut's brow.
1: The sweat?
0: Yes, they were objecting to the sweat. I think they were really objecting to a progressive racial message, but they can't say that. They can say, make him white, and then Bill Gaines can say, quote, go f*** yourself. And they can say, well, take off the sweat.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: There mm-hmm. are people who believe uh, there was sort of a conspiracy against Gaines because of Mad's uh, Archie parody, Starchy. Which is cutting and hilarious, quite frankly. I I recommend everyone check it out.
1: I I am not familiar. It's really good. (laughs) I think I've only ever read, like, one mad
0: It shows the Riverdale gang as as awful uh, uh, juvenile delinquents, basically. As publishers folded, so did their distributors. And so without distributors, other publishers uh, they folded served. Uh, Some wholesalers uh, had their businesses really cut. So, like... There was a domino effect up and down the supply chain. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh,
0: The number of comic titles published dropped over 50% between 1954 and
1: 1956.
0: That's a lot. So just an industry-wide collapse. Yeah. Uh, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby, creators of Captain America, inventors of the romance comic. Uh, Jack Kirby is probably... I know that name. Yeah, he's the king of comics, and it's not just a nickname. Uh, They had a company called Mainline, went right out of business. Uh, quality comics, which created Plastic Man, uh, Will Eisner's The Spirit.
1: Plastic Man? Is uh, it just like Ken as a superhero?
0: He's a stretchy wisecracking guy.
1: Certainly so, he be like, stretchy man.
0: Plastic as in pliable.
1: I don't, I just get like Ken doll. Like okay. not able to bend arms, but superhero. He's
0: the exact opposite. I'm doing a really cool
1: Ken, Ken superhero pose right now. I wish people could see it.
0: It's very cool, dear. You're adorable.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> wish.
0: But uh they went under, which is kind of a loss. I mean, Will Eisner is the guy they named the uh top like comic book awards after the Eisners. So him not having a company anymore, uh, kind of a loss. Uh, Atlas, the company that would become Marvel, started uh, getting distributed by DC Comics themselves. And in in that agreement, they were limited to only eight titles per month. So, you know, two a week until 1968.
1: That's a long time.
0: Yeah. It also obviously throttled their uh, production and business share until 1968.
1: Now, that's an interesting Marvel-DC connection there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do current crazy Marvel-DC fans handle that? Are they like, oh, or, oh, good, they work together to allow things to happen?
0: They're like, I was born in 1992, I think. <laughs> I think that's how it goes. <laughs> well, they
1: should know about this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this was also met with immediate criticism. Uh The Senate subcommittee's findings were printed in spring 1955. Their conclusion on the comic book uh, portion of the delinquency issue was that, quote, comic book reading is not the cause of emotional maladjustment in children. Now, you see, nobody reads Senate subcommittee reports. No,
1: no one does. (laughs) Have
0: you ever read a Senate subcommittee report in your life, dear?
1: No. No? (laughs) Don't plan to. Have you? Actually, you probably have.
0: I have not. No,
1: sorry. Oh, sorry man. to disappoint. I thought you would have been the one. <laughs> the one person in the world who did not write one that so, has read it.
0: What do you think good old Freddie Wortham's reaction to the code was? <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> Just utter shock? Yes. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I don't know how shocked he was. I think that's a judgment of character, but he was definitely a critic. Uh, What he was advocating was, for one, a hard ban on selling any comics to anyone under 15, but a graded content warning system uh, for 16-year-olds and up. He saw the code as a hypocritical uh, measure, and the new books that came out as sanitized violence without consequences so like where it was a gory lurid mess before the the new code approved forms of violence were even more desensitizing cuz there there was no blood there was no
1: it was like this we're we're going to do this violent thing but you're not going to see what really happens when you do it
0: right it's you're it, going to think
1: nothing of it because there's going to be no
0: outcome it it went from the Hyper, but at least somewhat honest violence of, I don't know, a, a gangster movie mm-hmm. to the really weird uh, black and white schoolyard violence of, say, Power Rangers. Yeah. And is that actually better from uh, Wortham's position? No, it is technically worse. So another effect was this is basically the dawn of what we call the Silver Age of comics. Yes. Uh, if you 're going to have simple sanitized stories and the competition from other genres are gone, superheroes were rife for a comeback uh, in nineteen fifty six Barry Allen was introduced as the flash uh, in a book in a book called Showcase Number Four, heralding a wave of rebooted Golden Age heroes and new silver Age heroes to join them. Batman and Superman got facelifts as the only and Wonder Woman as the only uh Characters that really survived the big superhero glut in the years in between. Uh, and so you had things like, well, we used to have this Green Lantern character who had a magic lantern. Why don't we have a space cop use some of the same imagery and the name? Yeah, okay, cool. Space cop? <laughs> the the Green Lantern Corps are space cops.
1: Oh, yeah. so they just took Green Lantern and then like re- did it? That's mm-hmm. your- I thought I thought like a completely new character came out of that. Essentially, uh, I, I just wanted to know what the space cop's name was, but it's Green Lantern.
0: People, well, okay. Guy Gardner. Uh-
1: <laughs> no, you know, like
0: Marvel Comics also helped define the Silver Age. Uh, they joined the boom with Fantastic Four number one in 1961. Uh, Stanley's writing was just made for punchy marketing pitches, and the code didn't say anything about teenage angst. <laughs> so much angst. So, oh, which really set them apart for the tween and teen reader who wasn't being served by the...
1: And teenagers love nothing more than teenage angst. Nothing
0: more than angst. They,
1: that that is, that is their language. Mm-hmm. That is the way to their heart.
0: So the Marvel titles had this unique angle, unique flavor and uh they they became cornerstones of the industry. Uh Silver Age books were more focused on bizarre super science and aliens while uh things from before were were more focused on magic, gods, the supernatural, summoning demons. You definitely can't do that under the code. But you can have But you can
1: have aliens. But
0: you can have bad aliens from from far far away. Yeah. Mhm. If there's a comic book today that's goofy and just campy. It's probably either from the Silver Age or it's intentionally hearkening back to it. Now, who was growing up in uh, the late 50s, early 60s? That's where your baby boomers come from. So with that huge readership, and the hold baby boomers still have on American culture, that became the idea of what comic books are. So when someone uses comic bookie as an adjective, they're yeah. talking the the Silver Age ethos. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That makes sense.
0: Now, you were talking earlier about strange men in tra- trench coats.
1: Do you want to buy a comic book?
0: There were indeed underground comics, uh, starting in the 60s. Did people sell them with trench coats? No, no, they <sighs> sold them in head shops. Oh, fine. You, you st- they missed
1: an opportunity there. I don't think they did.
0: So, you, you've got this generation of creators who want to make sequential art. They want to tell stories and, and draw pictures to go along with them. But with the code, they couldn't tell the stories they wanted to tell. So, instead, they self-published and found alternative distribution, completely bypassing the whole wholesaler ban on non-code-approved stuff. Mm-hmm. So, they came to be known as comics with an X. Oh, yeah. They were sold mostly in head shops, and the creators mostly lived in, like, the Haight-Ashbury district of 60s San Francisco. So uh between breaking the codes rules just because they can, being crude for the fun of it, and their, their distribution model, they were also really indebted to, like, drug culture and psychedelia. Nice. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Sounds like good stuff. But, to read. You know,
0: they're, they're still home to fantastic artists. It was a big countercultural thing. Uh, R. Crumb is the most famous underground comics personality out there. You've seen the "Keep on Truckin'." You've seen "Keep on Truckin'."
1: Google, Google time. Oh yeah, I've totally seen that. There you go. To- I totally have seen that. I know what that is. I just, I just did not know that that was like a thing.
0: Yeah, that is famous art right there. Okay. They also benefited from, like, the street cred for being independent producers. Of course, once something has any sort of credibility, big business comes knocking on the door. Marvel publishes Howard the Duck in 1976, inspired by the political relevance of underground comics, but without the explicit content.
1: What's the point?
0: (laughs) So in the 1970s, the code was getting old. The nation had moved on uh, to a degree. I mean, we'd lived through the 60s. Things changed.
1: Yep, things were different.
0: So uh, it was time for the code to change with it. Of course, John Goldwater was still in charge of both Archie Comics and uh, the CMAA. So change was slight. One notable change was that vampires, ghouls, and werewolves, when handled in the classic tradition, were now allowed. Ooh. So as long as you could convince the code that your vampire story hearkened to Bram Stoker, then you could write about vampires. Interesting. In the same year, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare asked Stan Lee to write a Spider-Man story about the dangers of drug use. <gasps> they wanted to use comics to, to reach the kids.
1: I remember hearing about this before.
0: Now, drugs were not specifically forbidden by the code at the time. There weren't real... Guidelines for drug use So we thought
1: They skipped that one? They were like Oh we don't need A guideline about drug use
0: But you can use Dracula You can
1: (laughs) We're we're gonna We're gonna have Very specific rules About vampires And werewolves But you know Put all the drugs in you want, Whatevs Uh,
0: Because of that uh, Vampire etc. clause uh, That specifically Doesn't mention zombies Because zombies Do not have a long Literary tradition there was an Avengers story where they had to make up their own word for zombies. Okay. But in any case, uh, between vague or not present drug use rules in the code and the support of a federal a federal department, Stanley thought, I'm in the clear. When he writes his drugs are bad, Spider-Man says so story and submits it to the code to get the rubber stamp and sell it through wholesalers. Mm-hmm. The uh, CCA disagreed. They objected and refused to let the seal be used on those issues. Uh, Martin Goodman, then publisher of Marvel, uh, ran the issues anyway without the seal, and they sold just fine. Uh, The story was heralded by parents who were afraid of drugs and uh, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. is, Yep, that's exactly what we asked for. Uh, If you read it, it becomes clear that Stanley has no idea what drugs are. (laughs) (laughs) or like what they do, or why people would do them. It's incredibly hokey, but it became a classic story for its place in this history.
1: Let's be honest, a lot of the don't-do-drug campaigns of our lifetime have really wondered if those people knew what they were talking about.
0: And, yeah, this definitely fits in that history, for sure. Uh, The code then added guidelines for depictions of drugs to to cover themselves in future. About time! But this... (laughs) Fiasco did set a precedent that adherence wasn't as required as you might think.
1: Like, you could still sell stuff without that.
0: Yeah. Of course, on the other hand, Spider-Man in the 70s has had almost the same commercial pull as Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck comics in the 50s.
1: Okay. So you
0: better be swinging a big percentage of market share. Yeah. But you can still do it. Yeah. In the 80s, comic distribution changed. This is what really spelled the beginning of the end for the the code. Wholesalers were cut out of the picture as distributors sold directly to specialized retailers. Uh, without comics on newsstands, there's no need for wholesalers. Instead, we have distributors going straight to your local uh, comic book shop. So without that, there's really no enforcement. Mm-hmm. The code was revised again in 1989, but the industry had mostly just Moved on. Uh, of major publishers, only DC, Marvel, and Archie were still using the code in any real capacity.
1: Well, and does Archie really even count? I don't think that they were trying to do much outside of it.
0: This was an interesting period in art, so... in the life of Archie's comics, when John's son was CEO. And now we live in the third era where John's other son is CEO.
1: No. A very different time of Archie, a very different, exciting time of Archie.
0: But that's another podcast.
1: That's a, we just should do a whole podcast about that.
0: <laughs> so the code finally went out with a whimper. Uh, Marvel withdrew uh, in two thousand one in favor of their own in-house tiered rating system. You know, you got everyone, teen, teen plus, that sort yeah. of thing. Oh, and Max, the Max label. <laughs> That's 18-plus, strictly. (laughs) I didn't name it.
1: (laughs) How many Xs do they use? Just the one. Uh, (laughs) Nope, I swore. (laughs) You told me not to!
0: Another big blow to the code is when advertisers stopped making decisions based on code approval. The twin sticks of wholesalers and now advertisers, both out of the picture. In 2011, DC Comics finally dropped the code. Archie Comics followed the day after. <laughs> like, you just imagine uh, the second son of Goldwater just looking around like, wait, what? It's just it's just us? Wait, we're paying dues for this? No, no, no. No, we're not. No longer.
1: Get rid of that.
0: So, with nobody subscribing to it anymore, that was the final end of the Comics Code Authority.
1: So they actually had to pay money to use this?
0: They- the cmaa was an industry body uh supported by annual dues. uh they
1: were this was like a thing like you have to follow us but you have to pay to follow us the
0: the code wasn't the only thing the cmaa did but for a quite a long time it was the biggest thing they did they also managed things with wholesalers so once wholesalers are out of the picture they have very little to do whatsoever
1: how did it take them that long to stop paying dues to these people.
0: Now, there was also a fee you had to pay uh, to the code authority to get approval, you know, to pay for the people reading them and giving the approval.
1: So then you had extra fees?
0: There were extra fees involved.
1: This is, this is just like a pyramid scheme.
0: <laughs> so, uh, once the code finally folded, after most people thought it was over decades earlier... I mean, this is 2011.
1: I can imagine people were like, wait, what? Uh, well,
0: that's, a,
1: that's news?
0: Like, reporters and bloggers started looking into this, because, like, there's bound to be a weird story there in the, the final days of this sinking ship. And what they found, uh, I think this was news broken by Newsarama, they found no evidence that the CMAA was operating at all after 2009.
1: Just people just, like, writing a check.
0: To nowhere, to nowhere, apparently. Like,
1: did they even have like a, a PO box or anything that of, was still being paid for? Of
0: sorts, of sorts. <laughs> now, uh, reporters called up Archie, and they said, "Oh, well, we thought that over the last few years, you get to put your seal, uh you get to put the seal on your cover as long as you're uh, up to date with your annual dues. We are. We put the seal on. There you go. They haven't been submitting uh, comics for two, three years at that point." They've just been slapping the seal on anyway.
1: I mean, if you're paying them money, you should be able to do that.
0: Now, the CMAA uh, had contracted a company called the Kellen Company to manage its operations in the final years. This is something the Kellen Company does. They just run industry organizations. Okay. They're sort of subcontractors that run your thing for you. Now, that contract ran out in 2009 and was never <laughs> was never renewed. Okay. Molly Hunter-Koenig was uh, in charge of the CMAA on their behalf, and so she continued to run it for those final years, like, pro bono, alone, on her own dime, on her own time.
1: Like, just in her own house.
0: Yeah, literally from her own living room, out of passion for the industry. Not
1: think to tell anyone, like, hey, so you know, I'm not getting paid for this. (laughs) Yeah,
0: so... She spent that that final year of volunteer work, basically calling up publishers, calling up friends and lawyers uh, she had at DC, at Marvel, everywhere, being like, you know, we have this body. It exists. We could do great things with it. We could do advocacy. We could uh, get our books in, in libraries. We could do giveaways to, like, struggling schools. We could provide a healthcare fund for freelancers. All these things. Yeah that would be great for the industry. We have a body. We have a nonprofit already set up. We don't have to do that work. We can just do work. Mm -hmm. And every uh, buddy she talked to was like, no, we just want to print and sell comics. And, you know, a lot of other third party people do the things you're already talking about. We don't need that to be in house recovered like okay but what if we ran our own conventions instead of these third party
1: paying other people to do it (laughs)
0: yeah like yeah but we like the conventions the way they are we don't have to do the work we just show up so like all these pleas fell on deaf ears and so she just kept accepting packages from dc and she would uh for all of 2010 she would take their books and she would uh, not even bother sending uh, approval notices because that's not her job. <laughs> She's busy doing other things. And she would cash their checks and put it directly into the CMAA's existing fund to pay off their back fees because you know their membership and their fee collection had been dwindling for years. They still yeah. owed Kellen back pay from when Koenig wasn't working on a volunteer basis. <laughs> They still owed back, like, tax fees, and they still uh, owed... Okay. So that's where DC's uh, book approval checks were going in, mm-hmm. in that final year. <laughs> then, when everything was said and done, the final uh, assets they had were auctioned off, including the copyright to the Comics Code Approved logo. Who do you think bought that logo?
1: Well, I have a pretty good guess.
0: Because you're reading my notes? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Darling, who bought that logo?
1: The Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's right. The, the people who stand against, I guess, all sorts of censorship, everything the code was inspired by and in a large, uh, way stood for, uh, now own their, their biggest legacy, which is that Classic stamp logo,
1: yeah, huh. So that's so. What do 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 they do anything with it? Is it just there?
0: Well, they use it as sort of a symbol of just uh, to
1: like educate.
0: Yeah, it, it's for education. It's for advocacy of their program. People who know their comics history and care about uh, the history of the medium are very familiar with that, and so it, it's an in for them to talk about. Okay, this is the sort of stuff we were made to fight against. Here's what we're doing today. So, to to sum up, uh, what really happened in all this, what we've learned, and why I wanted to talk about it today. It starts with a familiar anxiety about the next generation. They're always doing things that make the older people nervous.
1: Oh, you know, those, it's those youngins running around.
0: Whether it's punk rock or Snapchat or invent... Or, Crop tops. Or just being teenagers, the first generation to be called teenagers. Making out
1: in corners.
0: There's going to be something. Uh, and so... Uh, new new me-
1: hanky-panky.
0: All that hanky-panky. And so new media is uh, so very often scapegoated. I mean, comic books weren't strictly new. They had been around for 20 years or so. In, in a big way, but still.
1: Well, anytime kids get into something, mm-hmm. people get freaked out
0: the the columbine shooters were not trained by video games they still literally steamrolled copies of like doom and wolfenstein in either case
1: mm-hmm. i mean they're still playing like the video game thing is still mm-hmm. an issue out there of mothers being like oh no a child plays a game that's violent
0: so in the face of these uh evergreen pressures we, we had a restrictive code that uh, created, or if not created, definitely reinforced and perpetuated the for kids image that comics have. You just blurted out at the beginning of this recording, you love Saga. Yes. Uh, I think the fourth issue begins with a full page spread of a child crowning out of a woman's birth canal. Yep. This is not for kids.
1: No, it's really not. <laughs> and I read a lot of stuff that can be considered for kids. Like, but, my, my figment
0: and... But not exclusively are, for kids on your shelf, no, and certainly not on the store shelves.
1: But child-appropriate, in, yeah. in a way. Like, it's 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 safe for children to read as well.
0: But at the same Saga, time... Saga,
1: totally would not recommend that for a child.
0: Okay, what do you think your brother thinks of when you talk about how you read comics?
1: He probably thinks I only read Archie, still. There, there you go. Um, And, well, he just says we're weird. Those weird things you like.
0: So, like the this stranglehold on the content that could be sold in mainstream channels for so many years, as well as the the stories that came out of it uh, in you know that that Silver Age campy four color black and white morality four color heroism uh, that still go on to this day. Uh, the Silver Age is seen as the default mode for comics. Like when. Uh, the Flash TV came on, everybody knew it was going to be Barry. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be Jay Garrick, the Golden Age Flash. Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be Wally West, the 80s Flash. Mm -hmm. It's going to be Barry.
1: Yeah.
0: And, of course, it pushed other creators into an underground alternative scene that has uh, descendants in today's alternative and independent comics uh, that have now been accepted into the traditional print industry industry and also feed into web publishing. Web comics are flowering, and a lot of those people are very inspired by underground comics. Yeah. What do you think about all this? What, what did you learn today, dear?
1: I learned I get stressed out very easily, <laughs> and I get angry.
0: So we went from a downer warning to an outrage warning in uh, in episode three.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I guess what I learned mm-hmm. is that that guy, Fred B. Fred Wortham. Freddy. Yeah. Freddy Boy. What I learned is that Freddy Boy, he he might have created something that makes me roll my eyes. Mm-hmm. But I did not know that he was doing like so many good things, though, towards yeah. the rest of his life. Like what you talked about when we were at that point in the conversation of a lot of other stuff he does gets overlooked because he's remembered for this thing. And so it's very interesting to find out the other stuff he was doing.
0: that so- was actually
1: pretty... Progressive for the time, mm-hmm. but then he had his hands in something that was so not
0: right. Uh, the flattening of history, yeah, the casting of people into ready-made boxes.
1: Yes, yes, remembering them for only one thing, even if it's a very big thing. <laughs> it's a
0: big thing. <laughs> And so with that, I think we're going to put a close on this episode, and we'll be right back with all of our happy end stuff. Woo! Be right back. So this is normally the time when we do our coin flip, but we've got one banked so we can skip it. And instead, that brings us right to our listener mail. Hey, Ooh, woo, mailbox. If you'd like to get in our mailbox, you can send, uh, whatever you'd like to tell us to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word.
1: Uh, so first up, we have got an email from Zoe. Oh. Zoe is a, looks like a listener of your other stuff and so- some of our friend stuff. Mm-hmm. Zoe just gave us some nice feedback. That- mm-hmm. Really enjoying the show, and uh, we got some cool history coming out of it, so thanks!
0: Uh, Dylan also has some very nice things to say, but does answer one of the questions we, we posed. Uh, do people not from the Great Lakes region learn about the Edmund Fitzgerald in schools? Not in Southern California, they don't. It kind of so, makes sense. It's really yeah.
1: far away. they yeah. got enough other boats going on over there.
0: <laughs> and something else we asked, uh, we, we wanted to know your favorite moral panics. And Dylan is, is really interested in any fear-mongering related to AI, uh, uh, the augmentation of humans. I can't wait to see what sides people take as the technology becomes more advanced and or commonplace, and average people have something to say about these topics. Something that I think this episode communicates is uh, one of the interesting things about history is the shades it reflects on contemporary concerns. Mm-hmm. And I think transhumanist thought is uh, a great example of that sort of thing. Cool. So thanks, Dylan.
1: Another email from Jamie.
0: Welcome back, Jamie.
1: Woo! I love a good moral panic. <laughs> um, who doesn't, really? Yeah, yeah. Uh... As
0: long as you're not living through it, it's great. <laughs> yeah.
1: One thing Jamie's interested in is uh the Salem Witch Trials, which is mm-hmm. very interesting to me as well. And Jamie also mentioned their personal favorite being that of The Simpsons in the yes. early
0: years. I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons as a child.
1: And neither was I. Simps- <laughs> Simpsons was not something that was played in my home. Um, But the earlier episodes were a lot tamer than what we're used to now. But back when it first started, like... Everyone was terrified that Bart Simpson was going to corrupt the youth of
0: the world. Ay, caramba, indeed!
1: One interesting thing, which I I did not know this, um, so thank you for sharing it, Jamie. Is that when uh, George H. W. Bush gave a speech at the National Religious Broadcasters Convention in D.C.? That sounds like a fun time must say (laughs) you gotta
0: go where the votes um
1: promised that the administration would keep on trying to strengthen the american family to make american families a lot more like the waltons and a lot less like the simpsons (laughs) and everyone gave like super applause to that apparently the show in return uh had bart reply with hey we're just like the waltons we're paying for the end of the depression too
0: I I would rather not be choked by my father. I don't think that ever happened on the Waltons. It didn't. (laughs) Okay. I
1: I watched the Waltons. I'm pretty sure I've seen every episode of the Waltons.
0: (laughs) But speaking of returning writers, we have Purin back uh, in the mailbag again. Thank you, Purin. His favorite uh, uh, moral panic is the ongoing war on Harry Potter by the Vatican and various church groups. Their main claim being that the Harry Potter series promotes witchcraft and the occult to children, Permix point that, well, yeah, <laughs> it kind of does. It's entirely fictional, and you're not going to summon the devil. Or... You
1: can't say expelliarmus and have something actually happen.
0: Yeah, <laughs> but the fact is, they, they make wizardry and witchcraft and the occult cool and engaging, which promotes literacy. And if you believe that that witchcraft is real and and a path to Satan, well, maybe. It, it also says some other things. But thanks, Porin.
1: Ian sent us an email, and his favorite crazy moral panic is from the 80s and 90s around backmasking, or playing music backwards. Mm-hmm. For anyone who doesn't know, the idea was that if you played music backwards, there'd be hidden messages.
0: Right, and they'd like subliminally get you in your subconscious. Yeah,
1: yeah, they were like brainwashing you the whole time. So, it's, it's claimed that, like, Stairway to Heaven, the lyrics, if there's a bustle in your hedgerow, uh, if you play that backwards, it sounds like, oh, and here's to my sweet Satan. Satan.
0: I, I like how the, uh, evil brainwashing message sounds like an afterthought. Oh, oh, and one more thing. Here's to my sweet Satan.
1: Yeah, that's an interesting one, because people really did, like, kinda freak out about that, and people were crazy into figuring out what songs were sending what messages, but,
0: it's the well, best scene in Little Nicky, which is, uh, wow, that says something. The, the whole scare uh, about music in the 80s that this fed into, uh, was one of the factors leading into the PMRC, uh, if you remember Tipper Gore going before Congress and which led to the, uh, black and white parental advisory stickers. That and rap artists swearing a lot. I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Probably helped it along, you yeah. know. Ian you get a shout out to you for doing a PS in your email.
0: <laughs> I appreciate those. And uh I, I would like to convey the the contents of that PS to everybody. I encourage everyone to to uh look up D. Snyder testifying before Congress in nineteen eighty five in his full twisted sister mid eighties garb and hair. Beautiful. Fantastic. <laughs> We got a letter from Kieran talking about our confusion about why the U-boat was sunk uh, in the middle of the Great Lakes. Uh, And he has some answers. You see, uh, after the war, there were a whole lot of boats to go around, and the Allies divided them up in equal numbers so that nobody would have a technological advantage when they dismantled and salvaged them. And so then they had to do something with them, and you you don't want all these dangerous enemy weapons just sitting around in your harbors taking up space that your own boats could have. So they scuttled them and sunk them.
1: Or in the case of our local museum, they put it on a beach.
0: Kieran knows about this, as most of the fleet are sunk off the north coast of Ireland, uh, where he was researching a lake uh, where they were marshaled for uh, an article, and I think we might as well share some of uh, Kieran's related research in the show notes, so take a look for it there. Yeah. Uh, including an article on Dan Seavey, the only man officially charged with piracy on the Great Lakes.
1: I feel like I've heard about that, but I need to look into that more.
0: Does Kieran get a double shout out for both a PS? <laughs> yes. And a PPS?
1: Yes. Yes, you do. As, <laughs> as a fan of letter writing, it makes me very excited when I see those things used in emails.
0: As a fan of letter writing and afterthoughts. Oh, oh wait, one more.
1: I appreciate it. So thank you.
0: Uh, uh but he does bring up a point. I originally began this email, "Hi honey's," but that felt too weird. Like, okay, that's a point of what should people call us? I don't know, grant the lane is fine for me. But should we have a collective name for our listeners? Are they the Are they hunters? our honey bunches? <laughs> They're the honey bunch. Okay. Uh <laughs> If you want to say how much you love or hate that or uh or if you
1: have other ideas. If you have a
0: competing idea. The the email is historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. You can also tell us on Facebook, Mm -hmm. uh, the History Honeys page there, or on Twitter at History Honeys. Yep. Uh, Do you like Honey Bunches? I mean, if if you don't give us something better, I like it. You're
1: our Honey Bunches of history.
0: Uh, Okay, now (laughs) maybe my opinion's turning. Uh, You are teaching me something next episode. Yes. Do you have an idea of a prompt you'd like to give the people?
1: I would like to know, what's your favorite fashion trend or, like, fad?
0: (laughs) Give us all a fashion fad from history. Again, uh, you can contact us by email or Twitter or Facebook. And while you're uh, on the internet getting uh, in touch with us, why not get in touch with a friend? Uh, Tell somebody what you like about the show. uh, Share a link with them. And we would love, love, love to, to grow our audience uh, get two scoops of Honey Bunches.
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and uh, also, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else. Since the last episode dropped this week, we, we've been getting new uh, reviews show up on iTunes for the U.S. Store, Canada, Australia, uh, Great Britain. Thank you all so much. And probably some other territories I haven't checked yet. Did you know mm-hmm. that slightly more than one in three listeners... Are uh, international listeners? Ooh, uh, yeah!
1: I did not know that. <laughs> I feel so fancy.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, next episode is going to have some non-U.S. history in it. So yes, look out for that, yes, it will. all you you wide-ranging global audience out there. Yeah, yeah. One more note, real quick. We're moving to our permanent bi weekly schedule. Uh, we wanted to get out one a week uh, at the start to you know build our uh, library build our audience but it's going to be every other tuesday so look for that next episode that has something to do with fashion fads in two weeks
1: two weeks see you then
0: Mm -hmm. so i guess all that's left to say is uh that i'm grant and i'm elena and history's better with your honey. honey